Hello, and welcome to Bobby and Jens, presented by Zwift. Zwift is the app that connects you to cyclists all over the world and makes indoor training fun. There are structured workouts, training plans that are really easy to follow, online group rides, and why not try a few races? You can even organize a meetup with a bunch of friends. You might just have to make your own coffee at the end, though. With Zwift, you can even listen to this podcast while you ride around the Champs-Élysées. All you need is a bike, a trainer, and the Zwift app. Get a free seven-day trial, no strings attached, at Zwift.com. Ride on. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Bobby and Jens. My name is Bobby Julik, and on the other side of the pond, Jens Vogt. How are you doing, buddy? I'm doing good. Um, we, my wife and we, we took the revolutionary decision to return the big family van to the dealership after four years of leasing. So the last car that would hold all eight of us in one car is gone. And now my wife's new car is a British one, a uh, mini Rover Countryman or mm -hmm. whatever that's called. One of these smaller, like little matchbox looking like cars. And she's super happy with it. Um, but yeah, no more big family van in the family. Do, do your sons have their own cars already? How many cars are parked out in front uh, of the Jens no. Bogt? Uh... One, has a, one has a driving license, but doesn't drive. And the other one simply refuses to take a driver license. I think Ooh. that is kind of a smart move by them because they are afraid as soon as they have the driver license, mom and dad going to ask them, hey, why don't you drive your younger daughter to school or into the city? So they don't want a driving license. They don't want to drive. So it's just mom and me... Um, Living life as a trucker. Did you ever think that the, maybe the reason why they didn't get their driver's licenses is because you had that big van taking them everywhere? Uh, <laughs> yes, we definitely failed in making, well, no, we were too successful in making their life easy and comfortable. <laughs> and we failed in actually giving them a little bit of tough laugh and go, hey, no, I'm not driving. You're just going to walk or take your driving license. So we made their life too easy. And now it's falling back on us. Dang. Jeez, jeez. Well, it was Father's Day weekend over here in the U.S. And want to just say happy belated Father's Day to all the fathers out there. I mean, we, we struggle. There's no doubt. I mean, I didn't listen to a single thing my dad said. And one, one time he told me, the older you get, the smarter I will become. And think about that for a second. Because when you're young, your parents, what they say just goes in one ear and out the other. But then now, to this day, and it seems like more and more, I'm saying the things that my dad told me years ago, and it's finally starting to make sense. So had a great weekend. Um, thank you to my daughters for making Sunday a, a special day. We got a little bit of rain, which kind of canceled some of our plans, but it was all good. But um, hey, listen, we have Anna Mears coming on today, uh, an exciting, intelligent, inspirational woman that told us some amazing stories. So please stay tuned for our interview with Anna Mears. Okay, well today we have a very special guest, um, multiple 
world champion, multiple Olympic champion, just an overall amazing person with tons of great stories that hopefully we're going to learn about today. Anna Mears, welcome to Bobby and Jens. <laughs> Thanks for having me. I'm very excited to finally get to chat to you both. Yeah, it's been uh, quite a challenge. You know, our producer's in the UK, Jens in Germany, I'm here in South Carolina, and you are in Australia. Yes. So that's a little bit of a nosebleed trying to get uh, everybody's schedules to work, but I'm glad that we finally got you on. <laughs> this is the latest I've been up for a while with a uh, 16-month-old child too, so uh, forgive me if I lose my words at some point. <laughs> Let's let's dive right into that since you mentioned it. Um, how was that? How did that whole process go? I mean, that was what last February of you know, so two thousand and twenty, February two thousand and twenty. You had your first child, um, and there was just happened to be a certain pandemic going on. <laughs> Tell us a little bit <laughs> about what it was like to you know go through that whole process for the first time during the onset of what we're hopefully coming out of now. Yeah, well, I might start that story by saying in January of 2019, Yen set me up, he jinxed me. We were coming home from Angerston in the car with the tour down under with Stewie O'Grady, and he turned around and he said to me, I was in the back seat, and he said, Anna, I'm going to tell you my prediction. By this time next year, you either have a child or you'll be pregnant with a child. <laughs> And lo and behold, February 2020, my daughter turned up and um, – I have to admit it was uh, an incredible experience. Um, our pregnancy was um, very enjoyable and, you know, having having Evelyn um, honestly felt better than any medal or title that I have ever won and I never thought I'd get the experience to be a mum. I'm really glad that I, I have. She's a wonderful little, little uh, human being, great sense of character and energy about her. And, uh, yeah, after the joy of her arrival, the uh, world pandemic of COVID-19 hit. And, uh, fortunately, um, at her, the time of her birth, we could have guests visit us in the hospital. But uh, thereafter, we were in lockdown. So it was literally just Nick, my partner, myself, and Evelyn at home, which, you know, when you have a newborn baby, that little bubble is actually quite good. But uh, you also miss that uh, family village that normally is allowed to visit households to uh, help you out and allow you to sleep and recover. So um, Nick and I really lent on each other in that time frame. And uh, I begged one of my closest friends, Bertie May, to include me in her um, family numbers so that I could at least access her and her house. And uh, often I gave her my daughter and I slept on the couch. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I believe Bobby is a parent like myself. And as parents, especially with newborns, you learn to appreciate simple sleep, how good it is, how important, just an hour quietness and just no responsibility. Just falling asleep on the sofa for an hour in the afternoon is such a luxury. Yep, <laughs> I, I'm with you. I'm with you on this one. Not not easy, um, but it, it's funny. And, and, you know, Jens and I both have... Uh, daughters. And I was just trading texts with uh, an old friend of ours, Rod Ellingworth. And he was, you know, asking about how kids are and, and whatnot. And I showed him a picture of, you know, when, when he knew them, or, you know, when we worked together in 2012. And then just recently from a vacation that we took. 
And man, it, it goes by so fast. It's, it's amazing. Um, my daughter is almost 19 years old, heading off to college. The other one's a sophomore in high school. And you just wonder, gosh, last time I checked, you were just like this little, little being in my hand. And now you're like this, this grown up woman. It's crazy. Yeah, no, I totally agree with you. It goes so fast. I mean, she's only 16 months now and, uh, it, that, you know, the days feel long, but that 16 months feels like it's gone really quick. Um, but yeah, she, honestly, she's a happy little thing. And, um, (laughs) I, I, I do enjoy spending time with her and I miss her when I, when I'm not with her. And you, you better hope I never see her because I'm actually pretty legendary in corrupting other people's children. <laughs> I'm really good. Like my favorite trick is, what? Yeah, my favorite trick is, I, especially little kids, I go, listen, if you want ice cream, the magic word is right now, you got to stamp your foot on the ground and you scream on top of your lungs, ice cream right now. And then I run away and the parents go, what was that? <laughs> that works. That works. Ice cream right now. <laughs> the magic okay. word. Noted. If you ever come back to Adelaide for the TDU, I'll keep you and my daughter on you know, opposite sides of the city. <laughs> that's, a good, that's a good plan. But um, hey, talking about children, when you were a child, what made you choose cycling? Looking at the place where you were born and where you live, there was no track. Why didn't you choose, like, for example, swimming or field hockey? Australia is pretty good at swimming and field hockey, for example. What made you choose cycling? Yeah, no, Australia is very strong in a number of Olympic sports and swimming and hockey in particular. Um, but I, I was actually the baby of my family, and um, there were four children in the Mears family. And my mum's rule was simply that she wouldn't take four kids to four different sports. So the oldest, who was the only boy in the family, he got to choose all the sports that his little sisters had to follow suit in. So um, he chose sports like BMX, uh, which we all did, uh, karate, which we all did. We tried swimming, triathlon, cross country, all the sports that are available um, in regional areas where where I grew up. Um But it was the bikes that really kind of drew us all in. And we're kind of in two pairs, six years apart. And when my older brother and sister moved out of home, it was just my closest sister, Carrie, and I left. And we were in 1994 doing what every other Aussie was doing, tuned into the TV, cheering on our Australian team at the Commonwealth Games. And that was when, for the first time, we were introduced to track cycling when we saw Kathy Watt win gold for Australia. Um, she had this... Aussie flag painted bike she won gold she was carrying the flag above her head and it just sparked an interest in a very different um, discipline of cycling that we'd never seen before and it looked fun so we asked mum and dad if we could try it and um, they didn't know where they were going to find it so they looked up the closest club in the yellow pages which is like a street directory here in Australia and uh The closest one was 250 kilometers from where we lived, um, which on the old cattle roads would have taken us about three hours to get to. And um, most parents would have said, no, let's try something a bit closer to home. But my mum and dad packed us up, drove us in, and uh, I ultimately stayed in the sport for 22 years from that day onward. Just fell in love with it. That. I, I, I read something and I mentioned at the top of the show, Olympic, you know, Olympics, world champion, but also the Commonwealth Games. The Commonwealth Games, it seems to be, you know, just as important, if not more so, 
to than the Olympics for you know people in the Commonwealth. And I read that your sister and yourself actually participated in the same Commonwealth Games. Yes, in two thousand and two and two thousand and six, we both competed. Uh, together. Uh, Manchester in 02 was our first games. Kerry was a dual gold medalist. Um, I was a first year senior, so I picked up a bronze. And then in 2006, what was really special was that was a home Commonwealth Games in Melbourne. It was the first time that we had our family in the stands to watch us outside of carnival racing for what it was that we were doing. And the Hisense Arena in Melbourne, as it was called then, seated 5,000 people and the town where we grew up had a population of 2,000 people. So the stadium was two and a half fold, the entire population of the town where we grew up. Um, and on that day, I remember it very vividly. Um, I was introduced as the reigning Olympic champion and Kerry was int- introduced as the defending Commonwealth champion, which was a, a really proud moment for our family. Um, and we both, I, I won the gold, Kerry won the bronze in that same race, which was the time trial. And that night our dad shouted on the bar and our dad never shouts. He never shouts on the bar. And the four kids, now all adults, we just took full advantage and spent up big. And we had the be- <laughs> the best night um, celebrating after those Commonwealth Games together as a family. So this uh, moment or one of your best moments there, how many years of training had, had you done until then? Uh, that was 12 years. Up until that point, yeah. Well, then yeah. I guess you deserve a good night out. After 12 <laughs> years of discipline and working, I believe we just let you get away this time with well, one night you. out. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then so- soon after that, you're in Athens at the Olympics. You get a gold medal there. You set a world record in the 500-meter uh, time trial. You got a broad- bronze in the sprint. Um, obviously, you went on to do quite a few more Olympics. But my question would be of, of the Olympics memories of the Olympic events that you did. What is your best memory from the Olympics? I was in 2004 Olympics as well. That was the only one that I got to go to yourself went to quite a few. And one of my buddies here, George Hincapie has gone to five. So like, I don't have that long knowledge of multiple Olympic events. And I'd have to say that a few of my top, a few of my memories, or probably my best memories, aren't really on the bike. They were experiencing what life was like in the village, or meeting somebody, or changing pins with somebody. Um, so I'm curious to hear from another multi Olympian of all those years um, on the bike or off the bike. What was, what was that memory that sticks out that you'll tell your daughter one day? Uh, I think for Athens, one of the biggest memories that stands out is just the history of the the city and and its attachment to the olympic games and that the simple fact that there was this massive vacant block in the village that had nothing on it because as they were building they found a 2000 year old aqueduct that they had to preserve and we walked by that every single day um that was something that was very prominent for me but also you know i thought a lot of the locals were constantly arguing but they were just having genuine conversations <laughs> <laughs> so that was an experience to you know different culture um beijing oh there's lots of lots of memories um one of the ones that stand out for me was actually collecting my laundry in the village because um i was standing in line behind this 
this Spaniard and I was admiring these calves, you know, for a, for a cyclist, when you, when you see a good set of calves, you're like, wonder what sport they're from. I wonder if they're a bike rider, especially as a sprinter. The calves are quite a defining um, musculatory feature. And uh, as he got to the front of the queue, you know, the, the response from the staff to find this washing bag went from sheer excitement to utter um, just uh, pandemonium because no one could find this washing bag. And I couldn't understand why all of a sudden every person in this laundry stopped serving all the athletes to search for this one person's laundry. And it took them some time, but by the time they found it and the, and the person turned around, it turned out it was Rafa Nadal. Um, so that was a really surreal experience to literally just be standing in a queue to pick up a bag of laundry with Rafa Nadal and just had no idea other than admiring his calves. Um, <laughs> London, I think the highlight would have to be the crowds outside of, you know, uh, personal performance. The, I have never experienced logistically um, a games or a multi-sport experience that ran as it did and carried so much energy in the number of people the um, the noise that they created. I think the decibel reading taken in the final against Victoria Pendleton was a 112 decibels, and a jet plane takes off at 120. It was phenomenally loud inside um, that velodrome. And uh, I guess a memory from Rio would, would have to be carrying the flag um, for Australia and my last games. So um, that was pretty special. That's kind of hard to beat, <laughs> being the flag bearer. <laughs> That's gonna. That's, that's got to be one of those things that. Yeah, you know, I went to the Olympics, but no, I carried the flag for my country. <laughs> that is pretty. Very special. Awesome. Very special. I, I I remember telling myself, "Don't drop it. Don't drop it." I didn't trust myself to take a hand off to wave. I just hung on tight. Um, but walking into the Maracana Stadium with one hundred ten thousand people cheers you. You know, the the nation of Australia was announced. Was just. It's a visual memory I will never forget ever forget. Talking about the Olympics, um, you told me the story once. Maybe you want to share the story um, when you handed your passport getting into <laughs> the London Olympics. Remember <laughs> that one? Yes, of course you do, right? I was wondering what story you're going to bring up, Jens. <laughs> Yay! It's all in there. It's all in there. Just wait a few more minutes, Anna. Um, yeah, no, well, I... You know, it, as you wouldn't remember, the rivalry between myself and Vicky Pendleton was, was quite intense. And uh, I guess we had all of the elements that made it very, very engaging for both public and media uh, following to the point where um, when I landed in London and handed over my passport and all my paperwork at the customs desk to gain my accreditation, um, the gentleman greeted me with a smile. He said, welcome to London. I said, thank you very much. And uh, as he looked at my passport, His smile completely faded. And he looked back up at me and he said, um, you're Victoria's rival. Uh, and I said, yes, I am. <laughs> Please let me in. <laughs> <laughs> um, and he did not talk to me for the rest of processing. Um, now, that's a 15 to 20-minute time allotment where not one word was exchanged until he handed back um, my stamped paperwork and my passport And in parting, he simply said to me, enjoy your silver. 
Now, I hadn't even entered the country yet, and the very first Brit that I met had absolutely hammered me um, with, with, you know, (laughs) slander. Um, It was very well played, but it had the potential to really derail, you know, the whole setting for me because, um, yeah, it it made it a little bit more personal. (laughs) I can imagine. Holy cow. But, I mean... We're we're at the 2012 Olympics now, but like that almost didn't happen because in 2008, you had a, a very serious crash, I believe, at the velodrome in in Los Angeles. Um, not many of us um, even think of getting on a track, let alone going 65 to 70 k an hour on the track. And when crashes happen, um, injuries happen. Tell us a little bit about your crash and that that comeback that you had. I I know you were back on your bike uh, just you know a little bit later, uh, less than two weeks after that. But that rehabilitation process and that injury um, did that instill anything you know character building or anything moving forward that you use for the rest of your career? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I was in Los Angeles in January two thousand and eight, which was a World Cup competition it was the third of five qualification races for the Beijing Olympic Games and it was the last day of competition I had made the Kieran final and um, I remember my coach Martin Brass came up to me and he said look we're we're seven months out from the Olympic Games the last thing we need are any accidents or any injuries Um, if the girls get rough which is notoriously common in a Kieran on the velodrome um, I want you to give yourself plenty of space, go to the back and make as late and fast run around the outside as possible. And that's just how the race happened to pan out. I was mid-pack. I got past left and right, decided I was getting, you know, a little bit close for comfort. I'd go to the back, give myself a full bike length. And with 250 metres to go, I decided it was time to to get out the saddle and accelerate to, to make my move around the outside of the, the bunch in front of me. And unfortunately... Uh, clipped a wheel as I was in that process and uh, and met the the banking of the velodrome there in LA, which was funny because we we went there for a training camp for the in the lead into the Rio Olympics. So I had to go back and make friends um, with the velodrome after that. But um, I don't have a big recollection of what happened in that fall. I was not unconscious. Um, I remember coming to on the bottom of the track and just screaming to the medics, my neck, my neck, my neck. And then um, <clears throat> I was unconscious again until they rolled me over onto the stretcher. And um, I thought all the fuss was just, you know, a bit much, but you go through your normal checks, you get put into a brace, go into the ambulance, go to the hospital. And I was just waiting to be, you know, checked out so that I could get get back to the hotel, pack my bag and head home with the team the next morning. But um, as it would turn out, I, I did end up breaking my neck on top of a, a long list of physical injuries, including a, a heavily um, bruised right hip, a dislocated right shoulder, skin abrasions, which many of you would all be familiar with, you know, the old cheese grater effect on the road. It's a, it's a burn effect on the track. And um, you know, had that from my right eye to my right ankle. Um, and all my superficial injuries were right-sided, which was the side of my body which made contact with the track. But I broke my neck on the left side at the C2 level, which is the second down from the skull. So it wasn't the impact of my head hitting the track which caused it to break. It was the the force with which it bounced off the track, causing a compression fracture on the opposite side. And uh, ultimately, I was two millimetres from a clean break. Um, 
which initially, you know, as a young 24-year-old, um, it struck me with a lot of fear and a lot of doubt and started to ask the big questions around the what if uh, that two millimetres hadn't have been there. You know, where are my values? Where's my passion? Do I even want to ride a bike anymore? It's just bike racing. Um, and then I had to ask myself some really hard questions, be supported by some incredible people to understand where my passions lie and where my values were. <clears throat> and in my own family, asked me not to get back on the bike because they were obviously concerned for my welfare and health <clears throat> and well-being. But to me, I saw passion in wearing the green and gold. I'd been at the Olympics in Athens in 2004. I'd experienced winning a gold medal there. <clears throat> I knew what it felt like. I knew what it, it meant to me. And I just wasn't prepared to to let it go, to let go of that that chance to be at the Olympics again. You know, I, I realised the rare commodity of that experience. And because it's so rare, it's quite addictive. Um, and I was desperate to get there again. So I said to my coach before he left the hospital that I'd still be right for Beijing. And by the time I got home a week later, he uh, – <clears throat> He and my team had put together a whole new plan um, of attack for me to still make Beijing happen because um, I weren't going to shift the start line of the Olympics to accommodate for my injury. I had to make the changes in, in my path. And uh, it simply started with getting back on the bike 10 days after my fall. And the hard part about that was, you know, I didn't realise until I broke my neck um, just how heavy my head was and I couldn't actually lean on the handlebars of my bike and support the weight of my head. So... Um, to get on the bike initially I just was propped up by a portable self-adjustable clothes rack supported by people on my ergo at home just to get some movement into the legs and you know put some air into the lungs again so to speak and and it was a very slow very frustrating process but it started with that working on the ergo getting into the pool to get some you know momentum and movement back into the joints that had taken a big impact in the fall and and then it was really important for me to get back into the gym, obviously being a track sprinter, um, muscle mass, functional muscle mass, um, and strength is really, really important to power and speed uh, on the velodrome. So by the time I got back into the gym, I'd already lost six kilograms, which is essentially my body wasting away and my engine wasting away. Um, so it was really critical to continue to get back in there to build those muscles. But it was more critical to build the muscles around my neck and my shoulder because if I did get to Beijing, um, the the break wouldn't be strong enough to withstand another fall should I fall in competition without that muscle structure around it. So I, I went, ended up going to Beijing looking like a ninja, teenage mutant ninja turtle. I had traps like you wouldn't believe because um, <clears throat> I worked really, really hard on the rehab program that my, my coaches had put together for me and uh, ultimately – passed a fitness test four and a half months after my fall and, and found myself in Beijing on the, the gold medal race against Pendleton seven months after my fall. And it's a hard one to be flogged as much as I was flogged by Pendleton in that final um, to lose. Uh, and ultimately I remember crossing the line feeling disappointed, which is just the competitor and the athlete in me. But um, it didn't take me long to realise it was just a sheer sense of relief. Um, I had been so dogged about my approach and my um, desire to make Beijing happen that I, I probably didn't really take a breath until the race had finished. And uh, when I did, the emotions hit me pretty hard. So that's a silver medal 
Is that your most valuable medal in your collection? I mean, you got quite the collection. Um, <laughs> I actually have seen some of them when we had the barbecue. <laughs> like, well, it's now <laughs> almost two years ago. Yeah. Um, mm. Is that one of the most valuable or you would go, now? Nah, gold medal goes uh, above all? Uh, time and hindsight, I think, has changed my opinion. I think when I was an athlete, I would have certainly said my gold medal in London would have been my highlight. Um Now I would definitely say that silver um, has come up at least on level pegging. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to pick between them. Well, now we can talk a little bit about Victoria Pendleton. Um, obviously, you guys had had a, um, a relationship. You guys had a very fierce rivalry. But after 2008 and prior to the 2012 Olympics, I heard that you had a project called Know Thy Enemy Program. And you actually had a male track racer emulate the style of Queen Vic and trained in that way. And you ultimately won the gold medal in, in 2012. Tell us a little bit about that. I mean, that is so amazing to me because like, you always look at as an athlete, what you can do to be better. But this is like focusing on one single person. I mean, anything could have happened, right? Like maybe Victoria didn't even make it to the final. <laughs> but like, tell us a little bit about the thought process behind that. And do you feel that that was what made the difference for you in 2012? I can tell you right now, it was definitely the difference um, that helped me uh, change that silver from Beijing to that gold in London, because physically on the line there was not much separating Victoria and I and I think the separating factor was the mental preparation the strategic preparation and the ability to acquire the skills to execute on competition day and um, I remember Gary West my coach at the time was always talking about the execution of the strategy be the better be the better executioner on the day don't have to do it perfectly but just be the better executioner And um, so Know Thy Enemy was bore out of the Japanese samurai. Now, a lot of people think that it's about getting to know your opponent, but it's actually getting to know you personally, the person that you're working on. Uh, the reason Victoria became the focus was simply because um, she was the best in the world. <laughs> um, she was the benchmark. She'd been undefeated internationally for six years, And we were more than confident that she would continue that trend going forward to London. And if I was going to be the, be the best, I had to beat the best. She wasn't going to get worse. I had to be the one to uh, make the changes in order to be competitive. And um, so Know Thy Enemy was all about understanding my opponents so that I could improve um, my skills in order to be competitive in that sporting environment. And so we had an enormous team of people who watched um, video analysis, collated data on Vicky's race habits, um, her uh, preferred preferences on speed, height, distance, position, timing, all those sorts of things, and basically broke it down to statistical data. And, and from data, we were able to remove the emotional element of a human rivalry, um, which naturally comes when, when you pit two people head-to-head especially in a um, gladial style of event like the individual sprint, especially when you add in 
a, uh, a world champion like Victoria Pendleton in front of a home crowd at a home Olympics. And then you throw in that the Aussie is the one that's trying to upset the apple cart. Um, and then you throw in that the Aussie is also the one that, you know, almost knocked Victoria Pendleton off in a race, you know, some six years earlier. And there's this tension in the rivalry. We really had all the, um, all the hallmark elements of, of um, that perfect teacup storm for following. And so we needed to remove that so that I could firstly see the information to be able to understand it so that I could then tolerate the process of acquiring new skills um, to be a better athlete and a better competitor. I remember there were days I didn't, uh, you know, weeks I didn't talk to my coach. I was so frustrated at the process he put me through um, in order to become better um, that, you know, I, in the end I'm, I'm very grateful because he taught me a valuable lesson on change, um, the importance of it, you know, to accept it and that it's the one constant that we have in our lives. And as an athlete, change is constant, um, be it the, the rule parameters, the regulations, the, the athletes you're competing against, the strength, strengths and weaknesses you've got to um, combat from uh, your opponents and your rivals. And um, once we had that information and I was starting to acquire new skills, we had a, a guy in the team called Alex Bird who was um, very, very astute with tactical implementation and execution. And he was able to study the data files and the video files of Victoria Pendleton and start to mimic her so that I could actually practice racing her on a daily basis as opposed to, you know, maybe once or twice in a year. Um, this was important because we believe Pendleton was really, really predictable in her sprint behaviours as a result of the data that we collected and we banked on um, that predictability. We then banked on a similar response from their team on my predictability um, so we started to throw out completely different race strategies at domestic and international levels to hopefully fend off um, a scent on the potential tactic that we would ultimately employ in London. Um, 18 months out, we trialled the race plan, which was to implement the track stand when I was in front of Victoria Pendleton to ensure that she'd be in the front position. Uh, it was at the semifinals in the World Championships in Appledorn in 2011 where I was successful for the first time <laughs> in the world titles against Victoria Pendleton. And uh, we didn't use it again for 18 months until we met her in the final in London, um, you know, a year and a half later. we I believe that she was expecting a completely different race plan, um, the one that she had seen me ride the 18 months prior, um, as opposed to the one that she hadn't seen performed. And um, in the end of the day, I honestly believe the only reason I won was because I, I executed that plan and that skill better than she did on the day. So you would, this is so it great. Is. I mean, I, I get like hair on my arm standing up, like thinking <laughs> of all the data nerds that are in there. You know, I've, I've seen the belly of the beast in Manchester and those guys don't get out much. So I can only imagine in Australia, it's the, the same sort of data crunchers. And, but wow, that is such, so much more than I thought was involved with this. Thank you so much for sharing. No, you're that. welcome. It's, it's funny when we started to study the, the best in the world, we were able to start to replicate the same sort of processes for every other competitor that I had. And, um, it, I, I believed my team and I were able to change women's sprinting in that time frame between Beijing and London as a result. That's very fascinating. Like for a few seconds, I thought, well, maybe you can find out who shot Kennedy. 
I mean, <laughs> you know, with the team you had, you're pretty good at finding data. So <clears throat> there was, I, I never knew or I never expected that there's that much science and just, you know, numbers behind it and and just so much uh, thinking behind it. Yeah. But yeah. It, and, and it, it takes it takes a great team, you know, like I, I, I know that I'm an individual athlete and very much seen that way, but um, I, I couldn't be an expert in all the fields of professions that it took of the people who filled the roles of that strategy and that team being successful. And ultimately I won the medal at the end of the day. Um, but I will forever be grateful to all of those people who played a, a part in uh, giving me the tools and trusting me to execute them, um, how they were uh, designed to be executed. It's nearly time for Le Tour. And if you're looking to tackle your own double ascent of Ventoux, don't worry, Outside Plus has you covered. Bobby and myself are both members and get to enjoy training plans, exclusive gear discounts, entry to cycling events and more, including access to premium content from other outside publications like Velo News, Trail Runner, Yoga Journal, Backpacker and Peloton Magazine. All in all, it's $350 worth of value for just $99. But if you enter our special coupon code Bobby Jens 25 at checkout. You will get another 25% off. Go to valuenews.com slash outside plus and enter Bobby Jens 25, all one word, lowercase, at checkout to receive our special 25% discount. Now, back to our chat with Anna. I, I got to ask this. I got to ask this. So you gave us the meat of the rivalry. Now I want the bread. <laughs> I want to know when this rivalry started and where you guys are now. Uh, it started in um, Bordeaux in France in 2006 in a Kieran semifinal. Um, my sister and I were in the same heat, uh, as was Vicky Pendleton. And, you know, as you do in Kieran's, when you've got a teammate in, in the line out, and especially before Kieran's became as sterile as they are today, um, you, the argy-bargy was a, a very common element. Um, Kerry drew the better position. She was in the front of the lineup, so my job was essentially to protect her. I was, the, I was swinging on the back um, in the middle of the, of the peloton. And it was Victoria who made the first move, and obviously whoever it was going to be <laughs> uh, was going to be pushed wide by myself. Um, unfortunately, I turned way too sharp and uh, picked up her f her pedal on, sorry, picked up her front wheel on my pedal on the upstroke, and uh, in mid bend she almost crashed. Um, and I I knew I was in trouble and I'd done the wrong thing and um, I was disqualified disqualified from that race. And I went to her afterwards to try and explain to her what my intentions were and why why it went wrong, but she wasn't interested in my explanations nor my apology, which I totally respected. And uh, as a result of that, we I didn't hear the voice of Pendleton directed at me for, for almost four years. Um, so I made the assumption that she didn't like me. And uh, there was a this was the first time I'd ever offended anyone. <laughs> and 
it, it hit me emotionally quite hard. And from that day forward, I actually found it really hard racing Vicky because I felt so bad um, until 2010, 11, um, she was coming to the World Cup in Melbourne and she was quoted in the Australian paper um, when the journalist asked her who her main rival was. And in response, she said, uh, my runner-up from Beijing, Guo of China. And I took great offence to the lack of acknowledgement for my actually being the runner-up in Beijing, especially for what I went through. And it was that article that stopped me feeling emotionally guilty or carrying any baggage from the collision that I had caused uh, four or five years earlier. And uh, I was able to let go of that, which made our our competitive side of things really step up. And uh, we started to go tit for tat, tit for tat. And uh, really... It, we we only heard what people we said in the media, so we, we it was so hard to know what was quoted and misquoted. And after that London final, um, when we were marshalled under the track waiting for our media medal ceremonies, um, honestly, it was like two people who hadn't caught up in ten years. It was the guard was down. It was just two girls who had bore the brunt of pressure and expectation of two massive nations. Um, for a very long period of time, finally just getting a chance to catch their breath. And um, Victoria retired after London. Our paths crossed quite a bit because she became a reporter for BBC Five Radio and was at all the track competitions. She actually became one of my biggest cheerleaders and supporters. And um, at the Glasgow Games in 2014, which was the Commonwealth Games, um, she gave me a piece of advice um, in the media throng that no one else could carry the weight with the words of it in that it was the first time I'd been defeated at the Commonwealth level. I got silver to my own teammate in the sprint and her parting words were, there's no shame in silver. And of all the people who could offer that to me, um, going out or retiring at home games with a silver for her to offer, that was um, a really profound moment. And then after Rio, we had the chance to sit down and debrief with each other. She asked me to do that for her show, which I did. And we we talked for about two hours. You know, I asked her, did you actually say that quote? Did you actually say that Shuangguo was your runner-up from Beijing? And she said, well, yeah, because I was just so sick of people talking to me about you. I wanted to talk about someone else. So she had absolutely no intention of offending me. Just how it was worded, it did. Um, and I said to her, you know, that was the turning point for me. Like it, it completely shifted things. Yeah. So it was kind of like the, we were able to paint each other the one, other 180 of our own experience, which not too many people get to complete that picture from two very different perspectives, which ultimately were very similar. And, um, you know, we've had a lot of things cross paths. We, we were the first and second com- Commonwealth baton bearer. Uh, for the 2018 Commonwealth Games. So I flew to London to take the baton from Her Majesty the Queen. I then passed it to Vicky Pendleton. Um, and we got to spend a lot of time with each other, you know, talking about life after sport <laughs> and the challenges that we face. And and it's rare to find people who just get what you say sometimes. And that was one of the moments. Fantastic. Um, so 2016 were your last Olympics. Finished with a bronze medal, correct? Correct. Was that for you like uh, the whole circle of your career and the circle of Olympics closed in a good moment? Of course you wanted to win, 
but also you're an intelligent person. You also got to realize I'm a little bit older than 12 <laughs> years ago. Maybe the Bronx is, is all what's realistic to me or where you yeah. like really, no, I want a gold or nothing else. How was that for you, your last Olympics? When I left London, I believed I was capable of going to Rio and winning three, three more gold medals. When I got to Rio, I, my goal had shifted to simply winning a medal. Um, life throws its challenges. Um, the older aging um, athlete body, as you say, throws its challenges. And, you know, a lot of people, there was a lot of pressure and expectation for delivery of medals, not just of myself, but of my team, especially being the flag bearer. And uh, I think sometimes, not just in Australia, perhaps in most countries, we forget how hard it is to be number one, yeah, how many people can test for that one position, how hard it is <clears throat> to, to make that achievement. And in doing so, we can unknowingly devalue and discredit the achievement of a silver, a bronze, making a final, making a team. And it wasn't until my bronze, which initially I I was so proud of and everyone was so surprised at my response. They thought I was going to be really disappointed and I was just like, I'm so, so relieved that I could come home at 32 years of age after my fourth Games with a medal. Um, it wasn't until then that, that my uh, sport media liaison officer, Amy McCann, brought to my attention that no Australian athlete <clears throat> from any sport until that bronze medal, has medaled at four consecutive Olympic Games at an individual level. That's turning up every year for 16 years and being on the podium. So when people think success, it's not always being number one. Sometimes there is a measure of success in, in very different ways. And of that bronze medal, I was very, very proud. I would have loved to have won a gold um, for Gary, my my coach, who was at that time, battling motor neuron disease and, and almost a year to the day of winning that medal, he lost his battle uh, with MND, uh, which was like ALS for, for people in America. And um, it was a very, very sad loss. He was a, a good friend, a great mentor. And um, he really, you know, was in my corner for, for almost a decade as an athlete. And that coach-athlete relationship is really, really important. Um, it's not just writing a program and telling an athlete what to do. It's it's bringing the best out of that person, believing in them more than they do themselves. And um, you did that for me for the better part of a decade. So that bronze medal was very, very special to be able to walk, to walk away with some success um, for not just myself but for him as well. And, um, well, since I was there on that uh, night at the Villadrome Adelaide, we had, you know, remember that special that uh, special evening we had for your coach and uh, to create some founding and uh, to get some publicity uh, to uh, these uh, disease. You started a program with that, correct? Yes, we did. We started. Uh, it was Gary's um, creation called Cycling Cares um, to link in with a very prominent um, research and fundraising company here called um, Fire M and D but to allow the sporting platform to, um, you know, essentially uh, create the support required to create awareness and ultimately fund some research. Um, by the time Gary passed away a year after diagnosis, we had we had raised over $300,000, which he was aware of, and it was something that I know that he was extremely proud of. And 
What a fun night that was, Yenzi. How long had it been since you've been on a track bike? <laughs> we just randomly, literally made the decision that day, didn't you, just to come out with me and jump on a track bike for the first time in however long. Well, probably um, 10. Well, I, I did the hour record, but that doesn't really count. But in total, like probably for 15 years, the first time on a track. And I was fairly nervous because they're spectators. <laughs> and I was for sure the absolute most terrible shit kicker on the track from all these legends around me. <laughs> I mean, they were only Olympic champions. And then me, stupid Yenzi. Oh, I felt terrible. I felt like, oh my God, please don't crash anybody else. And please don't crash yourself. Don't look stupid. Don't do mistakes. But I was uh, alright. Everyone loves you, Yenzi. That's the thing. Everyone loves that you just jump in and have a go and support things. And the thing, you know, we, we even had some of the football players come out in their footy shorts and their hairy mm -hmm. legs and have a go on the track. Um, so, you know, it really was a, a community engagement event. Um, we had the coaches out there. <clears throat> we had all sorts of, you know, it, we even had Kurt Arnett come across from Canada, Felicia Ballinger come across from um, in New Caledonia, Michelle Ferris got back on a bike. Um, Gary Newon got back on a bike. It really was a big mm -hmm. reunion for all those people who had been impacted by Gary in some way as an athlete and coach. Um, you know, 27 years he was in that position um, as a coach to influence riders coming through. So you never underestimate that, that powerful position as a, a coach and the influencer that you have. And we had the stadium sold out. For the first time ever, for like 20 years, we had the <laughs> Adelaide uh, Velodrome sold out. Yes, that was a fantastic evening. There were some big names there, Yenzi. Mm -hmm. First time on a track bike for you. Everyone wanted to see that. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, talking big names, <clears throat> you got a Velodrome named after you. Is that correct? <laughs> it is. It is. The uh, Velodrome here in Brisbane that was the host of the Gold Coast Commonwealth Games. I got a phone call from the uh, Premier of Queensland, Anastasia Palaget, when I was in Rio, and she said to me, look, I put it out to the public as to whether we name this velodrome after you or, or we you know, name it after a corporate sponsor. And she said, my office has never been so inundated with people who are calling to say, call it the Anamir's Velodrome, that I was going to lose voters if I didn't. So <laughs> Uh, it, the people spoke. They voted for it to be named after me, and I'm very, very thankful. It's a beautiful venue. It's incredibly fast. You know, every record bar one of the Commonwealth Games fell, and would you believe the one that didn't fell was didn't fall was mine? <laughs> <laughs> Look at so, that! That's was, like a fairy tale. Yeah, yeah. So I still now, have a record. <laughs> every morning at breakfast, when uh, your partner goes to work, does he have to pay royalty fees to you because he works in your office? Did you ever charge him for that? I should try, but he wouldn't let me get away with that. I actually got lost in the velodrome today. I was there and one one of the workers looked at me. He goes, don't you own this place? How do you get lost? I'm like, I don't come here that often. <laughs> but it is, you know, it was pretty special because um, I live in Adelaide and I'm, I'm in Brisbane at the moment because Nick, my partner, is obviously coaching the National Tracks Sprint Squad for Tokyo. And... Um, You know, four months is a long time to be apart, so I brought my daughter and myself up in, in support of him. And I remember the first day I walked in with my daughter to the Animes Velodrome, I just stopped, sat her on a rock outside the sign and took a photo because it was just such a surreal thing where my life now and my daughter met the life of my past as an athlete. It was, it was really crazy. Well, you don't get a velodrome named after you, <laughs> and you definitely don't get to be the flag bearer in the Olympic Games without being a role model. And 
I would really like to know, because you've been outspoken about this, what what does being a role model mean to you? Yeah, well, I, I think especially in the sporting environment, you can't pick and choose what you like and dislike about what that position or success in that environment um, has to offer you. And I think that we as athletes have a, a huge ability to connect with, to lead, to showcase. We're, we're almost like the reality TV show of life <laughs> for a lot of people. You know, they literally watch us dedicate our lives to attempting success, experiencing failure, feeling the pain of an accident, um, the loss of defeat, the joy of, of winning and, um, you know, the emotions and the connections that can be bought between um, complete strangers as a result is quite profound. And, you know, when young kids and big kids look up to those people um, for inspiration to have belief and trust in, um, it's really important to carry that in in lots of different ways. And now that I have my own daughter, it's even more profound for me because she's going to look up to someone one day. And I just, you know, I I hope that... uh, she has someone to look up to like I did. You know, I loved looking up to Felicia Ballinger, Michelle Ferris, Shane Kelly, even my own sister. Um, and uh, I think sport is a great platform for that. That's very well said. Thanks, Jens. <laughs> hey, um, my favorite question. We talked all about training and I always love the answer. <laughs> you know what's coming, right? I know what's coming, yeah. <laughs> What is the maximum <laughs> weight you ever pushed on the leg leg bench or leg press? What do you call that? Leg press. Because I'm still blown away. I'm still totally blown away. So please share it with the world. Okay. My my PV um, lift in the leg press, single leg, so one leg, is 250 kilograms. Um so it's decent. I tore a number of glute hammy attachments in my career as a result of that. But, um, yeah, very, very strong, very, very strong. Um, and my max power on the bike um, was about 1,800 watts, but only for about 10 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> well, Bobby, I think only uh, for uh, 10 seconds, combined, only for 10 seconds. Us combined, we would have it for five seconds, you and me together. <laughs> For five seconds. At uh, the end of 200K, I, too. I don't mine know if we'd like even that. get that yeah. high. <laughs> well, Anna, I w- want to thank you. I know it's getting late there, uh, down under, <laughs> and just wanted to thank you for your time, um, your interesting insight, your great responses. It's been a pleasure having you on Bobby and Jens, and I hope that in the future we can have you back sometime. Love to. Love to. Really enjoyed this chat. It's gone too quick. Thank you for yes, having me. Yes, it is. Yes, we will definitely come back to you. It was fantastic to catch up. And uh, yeah, we cannot thank you enough for being such a great guest. And yes, definitely we want you back on our show. Good man. Well, that's all our time for this week, folks. Huge thanks to Anna for being our guest. Thanks for listening. And please give us a five-star review and share us with your friends. The show was a Vela News production in association with Shock Giraffe. The producer was Mark Payne, and this episode was edited by Tim Moza. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Bobby and Jens and share your cycling stories with us.
Before we go, a quick word on our sponsor Zwift. When it comes to sport, I always tell my kids, rule number one, have fun. On Zwift, fun is fast. Tour de France winner Garrett Thomas uses it. So does Matteo Vanderpool and Australia's Neve Bradbury Zwifted her way to a world tour contract. One of my favorite things on Zwift is seeing the flags of people from all around the globe that I get to ride with. I love the structured workouts, doing group rides with friends, and when I'm feeling strong, doing a few races. They definitely hurt, but they are fun. It's easy to get started. All you need is a bike, a trainer, and the Zwift app. Visit Zwift.com and hopefully I'll see you on there soon. Ride on.